Welcome to Let the Boys Kiss, the creation of queer ships, where we ask the question, is it queer baiting, queer coding, or queer canon? This week, we'll be discussing The Lord of the Rings. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. the lord of the rings who are these folks who are we talking about today so we're talking about a lot of folks today there's a lot of a lot of guys in these movies okay Mm -hmm. so you've got frodo sam pippin mary gandalf aragorn legolas gimli boromir farmir elrond haldir keleborn Aomer, Glorfindel. He's not even in the movies, but let's ship him. Sauron, sure. Theoden, Denethor, Wormtongue, Smeagol, and a bunch of other secondary characters you can slot in if you want. You definitely got to some folks I'd never heard of by about the middle of that. You know who they are. You just you don't know, know their names. <laughs> exactly. So we're, what are we looking at here? Because there's a lot of canon to be considered, but I don't think we're talking about all of it. We are just going to be talking in terms of the canon that we're looking at at the films. Uh, Maddie, what of the films have you seen? Only the theatrical releases. I saw them when they came out, and then I saw them again recently, and I don't think I saw them in between. So (laughs) not a ton of rewatching. And for you? I have seen the theatrical cuts and the extended editions. Um, I think we will be mostly focusing on the theatrical cuts because that's what you've seen. But if there's relevant information from the extended editions, I will pepper that in. That's what you're here for. Yes, to to add a little pepper (laughs) a little bit of spice um and yeah i've seen these movies multiple multiple times um which might lead us into our next uh question that we like to talk about at the beginning of each podcast which is how do we each feel about these properties i would not call myself a huge fan of lord of the rings as you could probably tell from the fact that i haven't spent any time in the last 20 years rewatching them. My experience watching them when they first came out, I remembered being, I really didn't love the first one. I liked the second one more. And then I liked the third one, but thought it was real long. They're all very long. <laughs> and then rewatching my experience, I think was pretty similar. The first one I didn't love. The second one, a little more fun. Love that the two towers are great, the battles. And then um, to get to transition into what we're going to be talking about, some good shippy moments in the later movies. Um, But for you, what's your relationship with Lord of the Rings? Well, I think it's also worth saying, even though we're not approaching this, you haven't read any Tolkien, right? Okay. Actually, I've read, I want to say all, but the last chapter, don't know how that happened, of The Hobbit. But none of the Lord of the Rings. So I'm a fan of Lord of the Rings. I, like most things in my life, am not like, the biggest super fan of Tolkien. Um, I am generally a Tolkien fan. I read The Hobbit when I was like eight or nine, and I I knew the Lord of the Rings movies were coming out. And so I read the, the books prior to the movies coming out. So we were like 11, I think, around that time. It's 2001, <laughs> winter Sounds 2001. right, yeah. Yeah. And I love the movies. I also had a lot of friends who were very into the movies. So it was a bit of a like... We all love this thing. I don't 
I don't know if Amanda remembers this. Amanda is our one of our mutual friends, but she was so obsessed with Elijah Wood. She had like a pocket watch with like a picture of him. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Right? That was one that she custom made for herself. Well, yeah, she had to cut out. It was like a printed out photo of Elijah Wood. So it, she was not, it wasn't merch that she bought. No. It was a regular pocket watch. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, so, yeah, I had like people to see. I think Lord of the Rings, the first one might also be the only midnight movie I've ever gone to. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of these movies, but... Again, my I think my friend I mentioned who's super into Star Wars and read all the extended stuff is also like a huge Lord of the Rings fan and she can like name just like so many Everything. things. And you're like, yeah. So it makes you feel like not a huge fan in comparison. But on the spectrum of you and me, the two extremes are you are a fairly large fan of the things and I am kind of the opposite of that. Um, but to be fair... I really don't get into high fantasy in general. It's not just a Lord of the Rings problem for me. Yeah, it's interesting. So I think we've talked about that. And in thinking about it a little bit more, I I don't know that I'm actually a huge high fantasy fan, but you didn't, like, we were both big readers as, as kids and fantasy yeah. was not like a genre you read much of at all. No, right? I read, when I was a kid, When I if I wasn't reading stuff specifically for kids, I was mostly reading like the classics. Not mm-hmm. the sci-fi or high fantasy classics, but like the Jane Austen classics. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think Tolkien was a little unusual for me in that it was like full other world high fantasy. I read a lot of like fairy tales and myths and legends and like Arthurian stuff, which mm. gets kind of close to high fantasy, but is also sort of a myth. Right. Um, but I, you know. I, I love The Hobbit as a kid. And we had them in my house. My I Actually, I was kind of obsessed with Lord of the Rings before I could read. My parents own, I think, a second edition of Lord of the Rings. And they have this oh, like wow. very evocative glyph of like the Eye of Sauron and the One Ring on the covers. And they were all different colors. And my child brain was like, what could this mean? What could this be? Oh, my God. One day I'm going to find out. <laughs> and then you did. Yes. <laughs> so... Because of the nature of lots of this, but the nature of the fiction really not being one particular ship to talk about, I think this conversation is going to be a little bit different than our previous ones. Um, So some goals I would guess for ourselves today are um, just generally to talk about fandom at the turn of the millennium and how internet and the digital age changed how people uh, were interacting with their fiction and then also as a side goal maybe uh how do we get me to enjoy lord of the rings a little more just through the power of shipping yeah we'll find out i guess stay tuned (laughs) so yeah we're going to be focusing on the three movies um they were all written by fran walsh uh philippa boyens and peter jackson and directed by peter jackson although fran walsh's partner did a lot of the second unit stuff so, yeah, we're not going to do, I think, a big summary of what happens in the films. It is not only not germane, but it would take forever. <laughs> so, yes, just so the, a, a brief recap. 
a brief recap if you're not familiar with what happens in the lord of the rings uh there is a a ring it's evil it's a bad bad ring it's a real bad ring and uh, a hobbit named frodo and a group of warriors of all different species and races have to go and try to destroy the ring uh they have various adventures they engage in many battles and spoiler alert that ring gets destroyed. It goes in a volcano. Yay, the good guys win. <laughs> it was in doubt many times, but they pull it out in the end. So like we said at the top, right, there's a lot of characters, but there are some particular ships and pairings that sort of carry through the narrative of the story, but also end up getting shipped a lot in fan fiction. We found one of our sources for this week's episode is a, a wonderful analysis of Lord of the Rings fan fiction um, that someone named L.R.B.E. Erkin? L.R.B. Erkin? <laughs> a lovely Redditor. Yes, posted on the r slash L-O-T-R Reddit. A full analysis of what's happened with Lord of the Rings fan fiction. Quote, there are bonds even fanfiction writers don't dare break. Merry and Pippin, Frodo and Sam, or trio Aragorn, Gimli, and Legless commonly appear together. So that's kind of who we're going to walk through as well and sort of our impressions of their relationship. Let me ask you generally, Maddie, when you watch these movies, do you do you feel that you want, that you think they should let the boys kiss? Do you get like strong general shipping vibes if you weren't watching it them through this lens of this podcast? Sure. Um, I will say, obviously, this gets complicated with knowledge that I gained after watching the movies. <laughs> but I would say Mary and Pippin, I think, when I watched the films, it was like, they're in love. Like, they're married, right? I don't understand what's keeping them from kissing because they're obsessed with each other. Uh, and then, of course, come to find out they're cousins. Thanks for the heads up, Peter Jackson. Um, I would say, yeah, they're the most overt to me in terms of just watching the movies with no other knowledge. Um, obviously, Frodo and Sam, it's it's like a little too obvious. Like, it's clear that people are going to ship them. They've got all the hallmarks. You expect it. But there's something, you know, just sort of... I, it feels like too mainstream. Like, that's the mainstream ship, right? <laughs> okay. And so you're interested in the side characters. I have found really my favorite at this point, and we'll get into all of this, is... Um, Legolas and Gimli. I like those two. They've got sort of a snappy banter going on. That's their whole vibe. <laughs> and I'm into it. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously there's more overt queer baiting, all sorts of places, but there are some romantic vibes going on with some of these characters. So Frodo and Sam, what's their dynamic like? Like I said, extreme devotion. It's pretty... It's out there to see. I Having already talked about Stucky, I would describe them as like a little bit Stucky-esque in terms of their devotion to each other and then some story beats that are similar. There's like some brainwashing going on and then the other one is getting, you know, breaking through their brainwashing through the power of their connection. And then um, at some at one point, one is rejecting the other, but he still won't give up on him and... There's that, it's that sort of vibe for the two of them. Mm -hmm. Were there any specific moments that stood out to you of their yeah, uh, relationship? In, I think, the second movie, with when the brainwashing stuff is happening, Frodo's being mind-controlled by the ring at this point, and he almost attacks Sam, and then Sam is like, it's your Sam, don't you recognize your Sam? You know? Um, mm -hmm. 
honestly, the two of them, part of what makes me not gravitate to them is the like subservient relationship that Sam has with Frodo. And I, there's a lot to get into with that, that I don't know we really want to get into about class and the relationship that they are supposed to represent from world war one. Um, but yeah, it's it's a little. He calls him Mister Frodo all the time. It's like a bit much. Um, and then the main, kind of the main shipping moment of the whole series, really, is the end of the third movie when Frodo has to carry. Or I mean, Sam has to carry Frodo up the mountain to help him throw the ring away, and you know, it's like the ultimate act of devotion. Yeah, um, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry I can you. Carry you. <laughs> And then Frodo at the end says he's glad to be here with Sam at the end of all things. It's it's fairly romantic, even as Sam is talking about wanting to go home and marry Rosie. Yeah. And one thing that we also wanted to talk about in this discussion, and we couldn't quite figure out where to slot it in, so it might as well be here, um, is as we were researching one of the things we found, and I, I didn't really remember this super well, because I, like I said, I read the books before the movies came out, and I haven't read them since. And also, right, like, I don't, I didn't have a good sense, too, before we went back and rewatched, like, what things I knew about Lord of the Rings, because I read the books and how that, like, informed my emotional investment, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, you had said that you didn't realize that he was Frodo's gardener, and I'm right. like... Of course, he's Frodo's gardener. And they do, like, kind of mention it, but it's not super emphasized in the movie. But, like, right. I know that. Sure. It's um, a thing that you already knew when you watched it. So what little right. evidence there is, you were like, oh, yeah, he's the gardener. So there's a lot more, like, physical touching and affection in the books. And they actually specifically tone that down in the movies. Um, and... Like we said, we're probably really not going to get into this, but there's like an interesting sub discussion to have about like what was normative and what was queer and what were the relationships of men in a war in like 1914 and how does right. that translate to our conceptions of like what it means to be a heterosexual man today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is at least some indication that the writers wanted us to read them as like heterosexual men because they were like modern audiences are going to watch this and not understand it in the context that it was written and intended um and there's a very interesting example right where um in the first movie when frodo's waking up uh in rivendell after he's been stabbed and ian mckellen specifically suggested to Sean Astin that he take Frodo's hand as he's waking up as a, like a show of affection, but like yeah. all that stuff wasn't incorporated into the script, but it like is in the books. Very interesting. And some of it, right. Again, is this sort of like stilted. Like, I think one of the things we found was, um, or I found was there's a scene in the book where Sam takes Frodo's hand and weeps over it. And it's right. like, <laughs> and you're like, kind of thing you that, read in a book and you're like, I don't, that this a thing is just that just weird. happened in the <laughs> In during World War One, did people cry on each other's hands or right? Yeah. But speaking of things that didn't translate for a non-book viewer, if we're getting into Mary and Pippin, I you rewatched. Do you know if in the movies they say that they're cousins? Because I fully don't remember that. They say that one of them is Frodo's cousin. Right? Pippin says Frodo is his cousin. I I don't. Th- 
think that they do say that Mary and Pippin are cousins in the film. Yeah. So if it is in there, I missed it and found them to be in the films, at least just married. Like I, I don't understand how their connection it could be construed as not romantic, not knowing that they're cousins in particularly in return of the King, the moments that they share there's the scene when Pippin has touched whatever that evil or Palantir. Is. Sure. And uh, Gandalf has to take him away so that he doesn't get found. And he and Pippin are being separated and they are devastated. And, you know, Pippin is sort of tearfully like, you're coming with me, aren't you? We'll see each other again soon, won't we? And Mary's just like, I don't know. And then Gandalf is riding off with Pippin, who's yelling out, Mary! And Mary's running to the top of a tower to see him ride away. It's like strong romance vibes. And then once they're reunited after the battle and Mary is like kind of hurt, I think. He's at least laying on the ground. He's, he's quite injured. Like there was like a horse on top of him. Something. Something, or like Something happens to him in the battle. And then um, Pippin shows up and Mary's like, I knew you'd find me. Are you going to leave me? And Pippin says, no, I'm going to look after you. <laughs> so this is also where I'll put in something from the extended edition. So yeah. Um, the extended editions do include like a lot more character stuff. So stuff I think you'd actually like, and there is more to the scene after Mary runs to the top of the tower. But I think importantly in the scene where he's injured and Pippin is looking for him is everyone's on the battlefield looking for their injured and they find Eowyn who's been very injured as well. And like, there's this whole scene where they go back and they're trying to heal her. And then they cut back to Pippin and he's still on the battlefield and it's nighttime now. So he's been out there for hours looking for Mary because he found his cloak so he knew he was there oh that's so Um, sweet yeah so there's like even more to that scene of like he's just been he's like I can't go back until I find Mary see they love each other it's nice but yeah you're right once we get into talking about the fanfic my impression has become you know slightly changed Mm -hmm. but the third of our main ships I would say um is Legolas and Gimli And what the two of them have going on is, I mean, there is sort of a star-crossed lovers thing with them because elves and dwarves are supposed to hate each other, right? Um, And then also just their particular dynamic is, you know, they're kind of sassing each other a lot and they're competitive. They have kind of like a screwball comedy going on, just the two of them. Um, And the two of them ride everywhere on the same horse. I mean, come on. That's precious. And then... (laughs) Into towers, I think somebody who is it? Oh, it's Carl Urban's character, right? Tries yeah, to is like threatens Gimli, and then Legolas is like ready to throw down on his behalf. Um, and then the point when Gimli has to get tossed during the battle, and he's like, "Don't tell the elf." <laughs> <laughs> and then in the third movie, uh, when they think they're about to die in battle, he says, "Never thought I'd die fighting side by side with an elf." And Legolas says, "What about side by side with a friend?" <laughs> Oh, Gimli, with tears in his eyes, says, I, that I could do. It's quite lovely. Their relationship is nice. And I know that, obviously, I haven't read the book, but just my slight toe dip into fanfic. Um, at the end of the books, canonically, the two of them just, like, travel the world together, right? That's very lovely. It's very cute. I like them. We also have Aragorn and Boromir here. What is there to talk about with these two? So I think that just was one that came up quite a bit when we were scrolling through the fic. And obviously, Boromir really only appears in the first movie. Um, but again, maybe it's worth mentioning that 
really throughout all the extended editions, Aragorn gets a ton more stuff. Like a lot of the stuff that got cut was human mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and so there's uh, many more scenes between him and Boromir where Boromir comes around to the idea that he could be his king, um, which of course, you know, is, is at the end of the movie when he's dying and he, and he tells him like, uh, my, I could have followed you, my king. And then, you know, it's oh, very that's nice. Yeah. Um, so that's there too. Um, and then I guess, as they mentioned, as we mentioned at the top, I guess folks also do like an Aragorn Legless Gimli pairing because they're often together. So yeah, that's kind of what's in the movies, what's in the, the text that you might pull out to, to ship the, these guys or honestly, any guys you want. A well, lot I of, mean, yeah, this is a broader conversation, but just generally, it is a movie full of guys and very few women. So if you're going to be doing any shipping, it will likely be some of these male characters. But yeah, to t- start to talk about the sort of fandom culture and how things were changing with creator fan relationships around this time, um, let us talk about the rise the of digital the digital age. age. <laughs> I think this is the really interesting thing about these films and also like how it exists, I guess, in my memory. But the movies were announced in 1998. Three years before they came out. And so this is according to the timeline of Tolkien fandom on fanlord.org, which is an insane timeline that goes back to like when the books were published. It's No, it goes back to before that. It goes back to World War One when Tolkien oh, in yeah. the war started to think about some of these characters. <laughs> It's a complete list. So the films were announced in 1998 and, quote, fanish sites soon sprang up. And that this was part of the Lord of the Rings digital marketing strategy. So one of the things we read pointed out that, like, probably preceded by the Blair Witch Project in the way they used the internet. Mm -hmm. But again, like, this was a different thing. Like, this is a big blockbuster movie. Um, And so there's a couple of things that they they did. Um, I re-listened to um, Anything You Can Imagine, Peter Jackson and the Making of Middle Earth, which is this book about the making of the movies. And they talked quite a bit about how open Peter Jackson was to like letting looky lose just on set. So they would catch people spying and he'd be like, let them sit in. It's fine. It's great word of mouth. One of the people they let on went on to uh, found the OneRing.net, which was like the main fan site. And so New Line, which was the company that produced these movies, sponsored the establishment of a lot of fan websites and really like developed the technique of like feeding the high profile fan sites, the one ring.net, the fan sites they knew were sympathetic to them, information and leaking things um, as a way of keeping people engaged, but like keeping the word of mouth positive which is obviously like a thing that happens now, right? Like as movies are being made, we see all kinds of promotional stuff from them and like anecdotes mm-hmm. about the set. And that wasn't so much, I guess, the, the case, case before. before. And it, just yeah. to see the company actively like promoting the establishment of websites run by fans is very interesting. Something I don't think we had seen before. And so like, as I mentioned at the top, right, even I as a child, it must have trickled down because I don't think I was watching entertainment news sure. um, that these movies were coming out, which allowed me to prep by reading the books. But another thing that I, I really remembered strongly was how they promoted the cast in the, in the films and like, um, You see this now, but for a promotion, the cast would do 
interviews in their pairing. So either like all the hobbits would be together or Mm -hmm. Mary and Pippin would be together or you'd have all the elves together. And um, in one of the articles that we read um, by a Tolkien scholar and a seemingly scholar of like Tolkien fan culture um, named Anna Small, she points out that the fans really conflated the actors and and the characters and their love for them. So one of the people she cites just talks about her love for Fro-Lijah, which is both Frodo (laughs) and Elijah Wood. And then in some of the promotional materials in the DVD commentaries, um, they basically have like oh, Sean Astin takes care of Elijah, you know, like an older brother. And you're like, yeah, I see what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Um, but yeah, I didn't I didn't remember that happening before. And now it's such a part of like, you know, you see in the Marvel movies, them all promoting together. And you're like, oh, they're all friends. Yes, that makes yeah. me feel like they're friends in the movie. <laughs> exactly. It is a, an effective strategy. And in terms of fan fiction really seems to have like sort of a cause and effect relationship people conflating the actors and the characters interestingly when they we talk about slash fiction springing up around this there wasn't a ton of it being written before at least the announcement of the um films not necessarily the release and in most of the fiction that you fan fiction that you read the characters are described as the actors not necessarily as they're described in the book yeah, so this that again was a, a claim by Anna Small in her article. Oh, oh, Frodo, readings of male intimacy in the Lord of the Rings. She had said that the no Lord of the Rings slash sites predate Peter Jackson films, which we were like, is that true? Is that a is that a is that a real claim? So we did some research and found out about what is likely the earliest slash site for uh, Lord of the Rings, a site that was called Least Expected that opened in 2001, which was when the movie came out. Though the person who was running it had been running a slash mailing list, which is how people were getting their slash fiction before these websites existed uh, back in 1999. So after they'd announced the film, but before it had come out. Yes, on something called e-groups. We're really not sure if that's a website (laughs) or just a generic term for something. We were on the internet then, but I don't remember that. No, I wasn't on any e-groups, even though I was on the internet. So I I can't speak uh, to that. Um, But it was interesting. So we we found another website where the person who founded that e-group and least expected was sort of like, making comments and answering questions. And she apparently got into slash fiction as a result of the Phantom Menace. And then <laughs> had that. an epiphany that Tolkien was also real ripe for, for slash writing. Yep. All of the material is there. Um, but she says something too, along the lines of what we've discussed before, right? Of uh, if you have a, like, you know, a non cis straight uh, identity or just an interest in non-cis straight things. Um, The Slash fandom, she says, was specifically a safe haven from the more mainstream parts of the fandom. Right. So even in those early days, it was sort of functioning in that way. And interestingly, she sort of describes the mainstream fandom of the time as being kind of a male-dominated space and consisting of a lot of... um, like people talking about the facts of Lord of the Rings and like the details that they knew about it and sort of quantifying the fiction and not as much um, 
production of transformative content. Right. And that's one thing, I think we've talked about it before, but certainly one thing you see repeatedly in the literature is this idea, right, that this transformative content is a quote unquote feminine way of engaging with material as opposed to like the kind of accounting where you can, yeah, name all the elves. Right. (laughs) Sort of like the baseball stats version of being a fan of Lord of the Rings. Right. Um, We also learned uh, from the timeline of Tolkien fandom. Mm, What a good timeline. It's really so in depth. Uh, 2000. So it's a good thing someone's counting those peanuts because someone had to put together this timeline for us. It might have been a man. Not trying to generalize, but... It just it feels like kinds. it does. Um, that the first Lord of the Rings fan fiction on fanfiction.net was posted in the year 2000, which is post the movies, even though the right. website was established prior to, I think, the movies being announced in 1998. Yes. Um, or at least around the same time. Which sort of leads us to what the state of like fan fiction websites was at the time. We think now of fan fiction websites being these sort of big aggregators like Archive of Our Own or um, the, you know, its precedents, but even fanfiction.net is more of an aggregator. The state of the fandom seemed to be a lot of small individual websites that were sort of targeted at either specific pairings or specific characters, or even just like, this is a slash site, this is a gen site. And then these websites sort of linked to each other. We found this slash archive called Library of Moria that seemed to be the biggest one of the era that we could find. And on that site, they sort of link to all of these other smaller places. So you could click around and find your specific corner of the community. Yeah, I think it it is worth noting that um, in one of the the sources that we had, uh, The Lord of the Rings Online Blockbuster Fandom, Pleasure and Commerce by Kirsten Pullen. She says that there were 700 fan sites that Lord of the Rings fans could interact with. Uh, Just generally, not fan fiction, not Mm -hmm. slash specifically, obviously, just in general, 700 websites. But yeah, she described the same thing even with those journal websites. It was like a very... um, like positive web community where people would link and, and reference other sites. But yeah, um, we were able to find a couple that still exists. I think it is. Yeah. A lot of them have shut down and, and disappeared from the net. Yeah. <laughs> it was the net when they were existing. Um, yeah. But you can get, yeah, there's like bigger collections of fiction um, that are obviously almost unrecognizable to the sort of fiction sites you would see today in terms of their tagging systems and all of that. But they were trying to be aggregators of content and then all the way down to some pretty delightfully niche little websites um, where people seemingly are posting just their own fic and their own artwork. And if you're looking for some artwork, oh boy, is it out there. Um, There also was a slash website uh, called Henneth Anoon that I think ended up having all of its content transferred over to Archive of Our Own. So there seemed to be an effort at one point when these websites were sort of ceasing to be active um, to at least find a way to archive the content that had been created back in the day. 
So yeah, and it's interesting to look at at AO3 itself. So um, and kind of what the state of Lord of the Rings fan fiction is there. Um, Fanfiction.net, right, as an aggregator, predates AO3 by quite a bit. Um, and Lord of the Rings is still apparently one of the top 20 fandoms on fanfiction.net, according to, to Wikipedia. Though I assume um, that includes like fiction from the books and I it's think sort it of does. all Lord they of the Rings related things. Yeah, all of the Lord of the Rings fanfiction is like in one area. They don't have the tagging system to have these sort of like separate distinctions. Yeah. Yeah, but um, it's yeah, it's a, a different situation for the movies on Ao3, and I think the the sites that migrate to Ao3 don't necessarily get counted in the general tally of fix. Sure. Um, well, the the tagging but, is not perfect when you just move over like several hundred works. I don't think that the tagging is as intricate as it can be when you're tagging fic individually. So yeah, in on AO3, we, there's really only about 5,000 works that are specifically tagged for the films, um, which if you compare it to other fandoms on the site is a pretty tiny number. Um, though you will find a lot of fic from just generally Lord of the Rings. And then sort of, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but the other films that have been created more recently for the Hobbit adaptation. So while we're on the topic of AO3, Maddie, you, you dove a little bit into the fix that are there in, in an effort to uh, see if we can get you to like Lord of the Rings better. I'm willing to put in the work, you know. But as Kelsey said earlier, there was sort of a question of how the Mary Pippin relationship would be talked about in the fix, since presumably a lot of these people that are writing fan fiction have also read the books and know the full story of Merry and Pippin that I did not know. And it, I did find that to be the case. I read the most kudos Mary Pippin fic um, that I could find on AO3. And it it is very much about the fact that the two of them are cousins. Uh, <laughs> one, I think it's that Pippin has been keeping it a secret that he has realized he's in love with Mary. And then that's sort of a main driver of the plot, which I don't know, to each their own. Everybody's got their own taste. But for me, I was sort of like, I don't think this is for me. Don't, I'm yeah. not going to dive into a ton more fic about, you know, the forbidden fruit of being in love with your cousin. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I read some Gimli Legolas just because I find them to be delightful. And um, I did not read what is the most kudos fic for the two of them because I'm going to be honest, it was very long and it sounded real Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> there was a reference to, uh, boy, I, I don't want to get it wrong. Or thank. Or thank. Couldn't tell you yeah. what that is. Um, so I steered clear. I went down. I read, I think, the next most kudos, which, again, wasn't really to my taste. But you can't accuse me of not putting in the work because then I went on to find a fic that I really did like called Finding Comfort by Scarlet Jedi, which um, has like a, the format of it is basically it's got some quotes from the book and then like little vignettes based around these quotes from the book. And then um, a lot of intimate hair braiding because elves and dwarves both have interesting hair braiding traditions. And then when they share them with each other, it's very romantic. Uh, it's a sweet little fic. I recommend it for people. Um, and you don't have to know anything more about the characters or the plot than having seen the movies. 
All right. So I would say mission half successful in terms of the can we make Maddie care about these movies because of the shipping. I had a good time reading that one. Do you think you would read more Lord of the Rings fanfic independent of this project? I mean, I don't know. I'm probably not going to seek it out. If I was presented with good Lord of the Rings fanfic that someone else had curated for me, then maybe. You know, I'm I'm not opposed. Also, if anybody has any Mary Pippin fanfic that doesn't talk about the fact that they're cousins, send it my way. <laughs> An AU where they're not cousins. Yeah, that's what I want. I want it tagged AU, they're not cousins. So, uh, yeah, we're calling that semi six. I mean, it didn't really change your opinions of the films. Like, you're not going to go back and... Yeah, to be fair, it didn't make me want to go rewatch the films. Because I, I just did. I just rewatched the films. And it's so many hours of films, guys. It's a lot of hours. But to be, I'm still going to count that as semi-successful because I would be willing to talk with people about Legolas and Gimli and how cute and fun they are. Okay. It's a Yay. win in my mind. <laughs> Yay, a win. <laughs> Doing better than the other direction. I don't think in our Star Wars episode we asked the question of if I was going to start reading. No, we'll have to check back in later. I, there was nothing that was going to make you like those movies, though. It wasn't worth it. <laughs> no. Uh, but that's not the question we're asking. The question is, will these things make me like fan fiction? I, I do wonder what the sweet spot will be for you in terms of if we can get you to like fan fiction. Because you can't like the con- the original content too much because then you're like... Why would I bother with fan fiction? But you can't hate the original content so much that you're like, why would I read the fan fiction? <laughs> well, see if we get there. I think we're going to have some interesting scholarly literature to, to discuss, you know, now and in the past and the future, which may give me some additional insight into my feelings about fan fiction. Yeah. So let's do that. Let's dig into some scholarly literature. Okay. I mean, I think we have a little bit. We've been yeah. citing some sources, but... You know, one of the things, right, with with the dawn of the digital age mm. <laughs> is, right, so we, we talked about how the internet affected how they advertise the movies and, and how they, you know, for really lack of a better word, right, use the, the fandom to help promote the, the movies yeah. uh, as, a, as an advertising technique. Um, and the thing that's interesting about the internet as well in terms of the production of fan fiction is it makes the production of fan fiction and the consumption of fan fiction so much easier. Um, so from that same article by Kirsten Pullen, um, she points out that, quote, the immediacy of the internet enables fans to get a rapid response to their interpretations of a particular text or fan production, rather than waiting weeks and even months for a new zine or newsletter. Fans' pervasive presence on the internet suggests that stereotypes of the fan as a fringe obsessive have given way to views of the fan as an average internet user. And I can't remember if it was in the posts from Amy Fortuna or just something we read somewhere else, but they had talked about how, like, in order to get into slash fiction prior to the advent of the digital age, sure, uh, <laughs> you had to be like go to a con and find someone who had a specific slash zine and they had yeah. to be like, Hey, you want to read this slash right. zine? And this you had to be like, I guess. Zine. And you'd be like, what's a slash zine? And they'd be like, Oh, there's this new thing people are doing where they write fiction about same sex characters. You gotta try it. And someone would literally have to put it into your hands for you to be able to read it. 
Right. And even like with the beginning of this stuff, right? So the e-group you had to sign up for. So you still had to be seeking things out, I think, in a more active way. And it's sort of just a bigger version of sharing it with like your friend group. Um, It wasn't a thing that just anybody anywhere could stumble upon. But I think, right, with particular with the aggregator sites, it becomes much easier to find what you're looking for. So Jennifer Barnes, uh, who we're going to be talking about, I think, a lot more throughout a lot of these episodes. In her article, Fan Fiction as Imaginary Play, What Fan Written Stories Can Tell Us About the Cognitive Science of Fiction. She points out that uh, fan fiction writing has become more mainstream, obviously, with the advent of the Internet. Uh, apparently, in 2007, Time Magazine reported that popular fanfiction site fanfiction.net was the most popular website of over 700 tracked in the entertainment slash books and writing category, Wow, receiving more hits than, among others, apple.com. <laughs> Can't say I remember what was going on on apple.com in the year 2007, but it makes it seem like... It was a pretty popular website. So I think it's just, it's interesting to think about, yeah, how fan fiction as a, as a method, right, of transformative fandom has ramped up. And we've talked before about how even the difference between a movie coming out in 2008 and now with Twitter and social media and fans being able to connect with one another. Uh, and with creators. Yes, and with creators. Uh so I think it's, yeah, it's just interesting to think about this as, as the start of all, of all of that and how different it was and how mm-hmm. much you still had to search around, but everyone was just kind of getting a handle on how all these interactions would work. Um, and it's been, it's interesting to see the, the journey and the start and the journey. Yes. Um, and we're really in it now. That digital age. Maddie that in mind let's take a second to talk about the hobbit movies <laughs> yes please let's <laughs> so uh we've talked in the star wars episode right about the the shock of uh hux and and kylo being the second most shipped oh we talked about it that was a shock. relationship <laughs> in that movie because yeah. it was like why why Where would you is do this that from how could you have emotions around this? I think it it has nothing to do with the characters and everything to do with the actors, which is its own interesting dynamic. And I think I had a similar reaction to seeing that compared to the 5,000 Lord of the Rings fan fictions, there were over 17 and a half thousand Hobbit movie fan fictions. You heard that right, folks. Hobbit movie. Not Hobbit novel. If you've seen these Hobbit movies, I don't want to cast any judgments, but they're garbage. <laughs> they're bad yeah. movies. I only saw the first one and it was enough to sour me on all of the rest. That's like three and a half times if my math is correct. And I yes. think it is. I think it is. Uh, yeah, I have seen all of these movies. I can sort of understand how when you're emotionally invested in a character, you might want to continue to spend time with them. Yeah, but it's a real struggle for me with these Hobbit movies because they do like no character development and they're just real bad. So I bring that up, right, as a way of, of also thinking through the question of like, why are people writing so much fan fiction about 
Hobbit movies. The Hobbit. The mystery must be solved. I think that there is a hint to that in um, the story of, of them casting the original Lord of the Rings movies, and then there immediately being a bunch of slash fiction about characters that looked a lot like these actors that they've cast. Um, you would, I would say attractive as the actors in the Lord of the Rings movies were, um, would you say that they continued that trend with the actors for the Hobbit movies? They did. And one thing that they, they did in particular was like, if you think of Gimli, they put a lot of prosthetics on him Mm -hmm. and dwarves are supposed to look different and dwarvish. Yes. But for, there's two young dwarves in the Hobbit named Feely and Keely and particularly for Keely, who's played by Aiden Turner, they didn't put any prosthetics on him. He's just like a handsome Aiden Turner guy. And you're like, who happens to be kind of short. <laughs> yeah. He's just a short Aiden Turner. And you're like, I hate this so much. But anyway. <laughs> so yeah, we, we read an analysis right on AO3 of, of their hypotheses about why people write slash fiction. And one of the hypotheses was uh, women who are the main writers of slash fan fiction just like handsome men and want them to be handsome and men together. So like, I don't know if that's what's going and on. Yeah, I, to be fair, that was among a list of many, many reasons. It was like Presumably 10. Yeah. a lot of them are contributing to what's going on. Um, but it is hard to discount the fact that when you have a movie with attractive people in it, they're going to get shipped together. Yes. <laughs> Regardless of the quality of the movie. And I also would say it leads to a theory of mine that there is just sort of a recency bias to what, to fanfic production. Um, and when you have new movies or new TV coming out, it's going to be accompanied by people writing fan fiction about it. So it's not a huge surprise to me that there is a ton of this fanfic on AO3, which wasn't around when the Lord of the Rings movies were happening, but was around for The Hobbit, which only came out, what, 2012 to 2014? Yeah, that's when the three movies were released. All right, we've talked about The Hobbit for a second. We can... We can move right along. We don't have to talk yeah, about the it Hobbit. It was just a moment to talk about the Anymore. Hobbit. <laughs> so that leads us to sort of like, if if we've got all this content for the Hobbit and not any content for Lord of the Rings on AO3, what's going on with the Lord of the Rings fandom in general? What's the state of it? Right. I have to say, so again, when we first were kind of diving in and looking at how few fanfics there were, I got real sad because this yeah. really was as much as like Avengers Endgame, the Lord of the Rings coming out was an event. And it was so crazy that they were making these movies and they were so good, especially for the time and going to midnight showings and my friends and I are talking about them. And so the idea that like kid kids these days, kids these days. <laughs> Are they not even watching the good stuff? (laughs) They're not even watching the Lord of the Rings. And I think you had mentioned that, like, maybe we're in this weird interstitial space where, like, people our age are having kids, but they're not Mm -hmm. showing their kids the movies yet. So I think right now people our age are showing their kids the Harry Potter movies. And in 10 years, they'll be showing them the Lord of the Rings movies. Yeah, we might see a uptick, but I don't know. And I also would say not we're in an interstitial period, not just for people showing it to their kids, but also of the production of Lord of the Rings content. There is this Amazon series that's supposed to be gazillions of dollars and set in the Lord of the Rings world, though not specifically about these characters. And I have to imagine that when that comes out, it's going to lead to a whole boom of fanfic production because <laughs> I have right. to assume... It'll be full of attractive actors. 
Probably. Uh, although, again, like, it'll maybe be like The Hobbit, where it'll be about that thing, not necessarily getting people to revisit right. these things. So what we found, though, right, it was that many of the websites which were cropping up around the movies are no longer updated. Um, the one, Ring.net, is still very active, but they diversified, so they posted about The Hobbit, and they're posting about the Amazon series as well. It's like sort of a Tolkien general repository. Mm -hmm. Some of them seem to have limped along as far as the mid 2010s, but yeah, most of them. Which is impressive. It's a good, it's a good long run. It's a good run. Um, From the advent of the digital age. Exactly. Um, And then we have our old pal from Reddit with the name that we can't pronounce who did his, his slash her slash their amazing analysis of, um, just the general state of the fan fiction in the uh, fandom. And so we have some interesting statistics from just a survey that they did of the fanfic they could find. And it seemed that it sort of, you know, meshes with the idea that a lot of these websites are gone. The, of the stories that they could find, about 58% were abandoned. 38% of them were already complete and only 4% of them were still being updated regularly. So yeah, yeah that sort of jibes with the uh, idea that there's not a lot of active fandom around this right now. Yeah. So after thinking about this a little bit more though, I had the thought of even for me, a person who does not participate in this sort of transformative fan culture, my response to this is like, Oh no, this is a dead fandom. Mm-hmm. But is it just possible that the, the fandom has reverted to its previous form? <laughs> right. Does, yeah. Does a fandom have to have all of the qualities that we've been talking about of like an active fic production community and a ton of people on Tumblr sharing GIF sets? Is that necessary for what a fandom is? Or is there like a broader way to think about what a fandom is? Because I promise you there are still plenty of living people who would consider themselves fans of Lord of the Rings walking around the world. Yeah, and you can hear their stories. So this was a very interesting thing uh, I came across uh, and seems to me like a relatively unique uh, element of the Tolkien fan culture, which there's a project at Marquette University and it's online called the Tolkien Fandom Oral History Project where people um, send in three-minute or less discussions of... uh, how they became a Tolkien fan, what the, what Tolkien has meant to them. Uh, and I was like, it's, it's really quite beautiful and a, and an interesting alternative look at, at, at fandom and what it, it means to be a fan of things. But I think we're going to be exploring that more and like what kind of people are attracted to this transformative um, type of fandom and uh, the sort of tension that exists right between people who do want to engage in transformative fandom and those who are interested in the fidelity of the source material. And um, there's always tension there, but it's a, it's a really lovely project that Marquette that is University is doing. Sweet. Keep the love alive, Marquette. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's kind of our, our discussion of Lord of the Rings a little bit different, Yeah. but I, I enjoyed learning a lot of the stuff and for me diving back into the movies because I don't think I've actually rewatched them in a good like seven or eight years. So it was oh, yeah. pleasant for me. Good to, good to revisit. <laughs> so, I mean, as we have to do, even though this was a different discussion, we need to get into our, is it queer baiting, queer coding or queer canon question? 
it's sort of a broader question since we're not talking about just one ship. Just generally, do we have an idea of if we think that any queer baiting, queer coding or queer canon was going on in the production of these films? Well, I think it raises an interesting question of the thing we mentioned at the top, but haven't really talked about, which is like, if something does not fit into our current conception of what it means to be a heterosexual male, is that by definition queer? It is a good question, right? Because it all falls back on whether or not intent is a necessary part for all of these things. Like, do we only view something as queer in whatever sense, uh, if the person who was writing it specifically intended for it to be that way? And I would say probably not in all cases, right? I think there are a lot of, there's interpretation involved in all of this. Also, there's the fact that in everything we've been talking about, there's not really just one creator. If we were just talking about the books and you know, it would really be like, well, what does Tolkien say? That's the last word on it, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But in this case, you have writers, you have directors, you have actors, you have producers, you have all of these people that are involved in the creation of the fiction who might not agree. Um, I I wouldn't say that in this case, because I don't really know. So yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think there's a discussion to be had about the fact that these characters are based on people of a different era who have different standards and norms and can at least appear to our modern eyes as queer coded characters, if nothing else, right? A willingness to engage in physical affection, which we might now code as queer. Mm -hmm. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. It's an open question. (laughs) On this one, I would say I don't I'm not here to say that this is specifically queer baiting. I don't know that any of these people have written these characters the way that they're written in an effort to draw in a queer audience. Well, I think again, right, the fact that they specifically were like, let's take out these moments of physical affection because they're going to read differently. Right. Is an indication that they did not intend for these characters to be read as queer. Right. But I guess, yeah, right. Whether or not it's, it's queer coding I don't, I am not enough of a historian right, to answer that question. Right. So I think it might be outside of our, our question. We might, we might not be able to, ask. the answer is none, none of the above in this case, perhaps. Um, I know we're, we're not too far into the podcast to sort of like fail at, at yeah, answering right. our, our question, but. Apparently our question is not bulletproof. And I guess we still have our question of if we gender swapped any of these characters, would they reasonably be expected to be a couple in the fiction. So one thing that I haven't said so far, because I think I asked you at the top, right? Like without this, the, this podcast framing these movies in this way, would you ship any of these characters? So I, across the board, don't get a very let the boys kiss. I think these are not sexy books or movies. That's fair. Well, I, interestingly, there's a whole other work of scholarly fiction we didn't get into specifically about people thinking that um, the books are like not sexy enough, basically. So I think you're right. There is an element of that because I don't think Tolkien really intended for any of these characters to be sexualized. And it makes it so that new versions of them are not particularly romantic. I, I don't know. I don't I just I just don't feel like anyone should be a couple of these movies. 
Anyone can be a couple at any time, Kelsey. That's the joy of fandom. So <laughs> we now have a series of questions that were just like, I don't know. Why isn't it canon? Because, yeah, I'm with you. I think the creators didn't think about it at all. I think all of the queer shipping and fandom around it is supplementary. I don't think it's really intended to be there in the text. So we will not rate this on our queer baiting scale. No, because we it's don't think it's not. queer baiting. All right. I think that's our Lord of the Rings discussion. Unless we have any, right. other, any other thoughts. I've said all I can say because I don't want to get into talking about the movie too much because I'll go on, you know? So uh, what are we doing next week? Do you think it's going to be a more normal episode? <laughs> well, it's definitely going to be more queer. I'll tell you that uh, because what we are doing is the limited series Good Omens based on the Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett book written for the screen by Neil Gaiman. And I'm pretty excited about it. David Tennant and Michael Sheen are pretty fun together. So what if people want to get in touch with us? I hope they do. And they should email us at ltbkpod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Tumblr at ltbkpod. New episodes of Let the Boys Kiss are released every other Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>